Welcome to the Iowa Geriatric Education Center Lecture Series. This session, we will overview the clinical features of frontotemporal dementia and diffuse Lewy body dementia. I'd like to mention my disclosures before I begin the rest of the talk. Today we will review variations in dementia syndromes. I think one of the important things to bear in mind about this particular lecture is the fact that when we refer to the term dementia, many of our patients think that we're referring to Alzheimer's disease. And it's not at all uncommon for a patient to say, well, do I have dementia or do I have Alzheimer's disease? And frequently, we will describe that, well, in fact, Alzheimer's disease is a dementia, but dementia can be caused by a number of different things. What you see most often in our current population is either Alzheimer's disease or vascular-related dementia changes. These are the most common dementias after the age of 65, and in fact, in combination, are probably even more prevalent as, um, as an individual gets older and vascular disease risk factors tend to exert more of their deleterious effects. However, after the age of 65, Lewy body dementia also is a concern that we'll describe here. It has many features that overlap with Parkinson's disease, but it has its own unique course. Many times Lewy body dementia is less well recognized and oftentimes harder to treat. So we'll talk a little bit about its unique course as well as strategies to avoid problems in treatment and have the best outcome. Now frontotemporal dementia we will also overview today and it's a very interesting dementia in the sense that it starts much earlier in life, oftentimes earlier than Alzheimer's disease or the other dementias. Interestingly as well, both frontotemporal and Lewy body dementia do not necessarily have memory loss as a core feature. Most of our patients and many clinicians believe when you say dementia that it's a loss of memory and that's the way most of us frame these illnesses. In fact, dementia can have primary features that involve other domains of cognition, not just memory, and we'll describe those as we review both frontotemporal and Lewy body dementias. So as I start with frontotemporal dementia, we will be highlighting some of the main features in a case presentation today. But to start to frame the presentation of frontotemporal dementia, I'd like to emphasize that there are two variants of the disease, although they often have overlap. But the two main variants include a change in behavior. It can often include repetitive questions or compulsive behaviors. And the behavior variant is also associated with a loss of normal social engagement, normal social expression, and interactions. The other variant is a language variant where there are prominent disruptions in language and communication. And we'll talk a little bit more about those specific features today as well. 
One um, brief mention of different uh, pearls or observations uh, that we've noticed from cases is the unique burden of care that we see with clinical patients who have frontotemporal dementia in particular or many of the other early onset dementias where there may be an absence of medical frailty. These include things like frontotemporal dementia or um, dementia related to head trauma where a relatively healthy appearance of an individual can really complicate caregiving. When a person appears young and healthy and doesn't have frailty or other chronic medical conditions, we often don't think about the diagnosis of dementia and we hesitate to sometimes pursue those diagnoses and we assume it might be a primary mental disorder such as depression or anxiousness. But when we see problems in public places in a person who had previously been functioning normally socially, um, you can have more difficulties in managing early onset conditions like frontotemporal dementia. Particularly the behavior problems in frontotemporal dementia, including disinhibited behaviors or loss of normal social behaviors, can create problems in day-to-day -day life, problems in the workplace, and in public situations. Because younger onset diseases often aren't accompanied by medical frailty, sometimes there's difficulty in nursing care facilities or long-term care facilities really knowing how to manage the care when they might be very familiar with chronic frailty diseases, but a younger individual with dementia can be particularly difficult. A younger individual also has much more capability to wander or drive and other, other things that are often associated with midlife and, and a healthy life. But as the brain starts to change, in the absence of frailty, sometimes there's greater potential for harm. We'll begin with the case presentation to try to illustrate some of the features of frontotemporal dementia, and then we'll proceed more specifically with the diagnostic features and management. So we'll start with the case of Mrs. K. She's presently in her early 80s, and she's presently residing in a long-term care facility but we'll talk about the last 10-year course of her deterioration to try to understand how she developed frontotemporal dementia and how the, the first clinical features were recognized. Mrs. K did very well in life until around her late 60s, early 70s. She had no previous psychiatric history. She had good physical and generally very good cognitive health through, throughout her life. At the time she first presented, she was living alone, independently, in her own apartment. She was completing most of her activities of daily living um, without difficulty. She was driving, babysitting grandchildren. However, she noticed some change and she presented to our clinic with a, quote, memory complaint or feeling that she needed a memory evaluation. When we asked more specifically about that, she reported that she felt she couldn't name things in the same way. She had trouble with words coming to mind. And her family was telling her that she needed to clean her apartment. 
when we further explored the problems with her apartment, it sounded as if she was obsessively collecting and perhaps hoarding items in a compulsive way. We also noticed during her clinical evaluation that she displayed what she called shutterbug behaviors. And by that, uh, we mean that she took photos at unusual times. She carried a camera into the exam room and was photographing the exam room itself, the clinical staff, and various objects in the environment. And that the photographing behaviors had something of a compulsive nature in their frequency. She was also um, carrying multiple bottles of water with her, and this seemed to also be a compulsive behavior to be carrying these objects. On a brief mental evaluation screen, she did relatively well, well, scoring 27 out of 30, which would not place her at age 71 in an abnormal range of mental function. So in reviewing her medical history, she really had very few chronic illnesses. She had had good routine medical follow-up and was noted only to have benign polyps on colonoscopy. She'd had no other major surgical procedures. She was on very few medications. She took aspirin, uh, metamucil, vitamins, but was on no major cardiac or other chronic illness management type medications. Her social history was significant for completing high school. She had worked in a clerical position um, successfully for many, many years before retirement. She had only a brief episode of smoking and no other substance use. It's also worth mentioning that she had no um, history of brain injury or other concerns neurologically. And her family history, by her report, was negative for dementia, although she suspected that one brother might be having some mental difficulties. On further evaluation with magnetic resonance imaging, she was noted to have temporal atrophy on her MRI scan and subtle frontal atrophy as well. If you look here in the temporal region of the brain, in this upper left image, you can see a great deal of cerebrospinal fluid and a relative loss of the, the temporal region. You can also see this on a, an axial view as well. And here, particularly when we look medial temporally, um, there's a great deal of volume loss and more subtle frontal volume loss as well. And here we have a couple of the of coronal images that highlight this as well. If we compare now a healthy patient that does not have temporal atrophy, you can see here that there are nice full temporal lobes. And if you compare to our patient, you'll see a relative loss in this area of temporal volume. So there was noted on this MRI report Interestingly, in an individual who had a relatively normal mental status exam of 27 out of 30, that there was atrophy of the temporal lobes with some subtle frontal atrophy and dilatation of the lateral ventricles and marked dilatation of the ventral horns. So there was an abnormal MRI scan, interestingly, in this relatively young 71-year-old who was presenting with some cognitive concerns. She proceeded with full neuropsychological testing and was noted to have some deficits in expressive language and higher order reasoning abilities. 
with a relative sparing at that time of basic perceptual abilities and her speed of processing. So the profile was consistent with a frontal dementia. Now, interestingly, during that evaluation and in that assessment report, it was noted that socially her interpersonal language was somewhat vague and unusual. While she had good social skills, there were times of laughing inappropriately, particularly when discussing concerns like her cognitive difficulties, where typically a person wouldn't be laughing, suggesting that her insight perhaps was impaired. And insight is a very common problem, particularly in the early onset dementias such as frontotemporal dementia, where the ability to self-assess deficits or have insight into new impairments can be limited early in the illness. Approximately two years later, when the patient was seen in follow-up, she continued to live independently in her own apartment. She was still completing most of her activities of daily living, but she was noted on further questioning um, to have had more hoarding behaviors over time. And a home visit revealed that she had cluttered belongings in her apartment of such a degree that there were only narrow pathways to move from room to room in her apartment. Her family also was noting that she was having much more difficulty in reaching conclusions and making decisions, even with simple tasks like making decisions from a menu in a restaurant. And she was increasingly dependent on her family to assist her with decisions regarding finances and other day-to-day -day life choices. At that time, two years later, she had a repeat of her neuropsychological assessment. And at that time, it was noted that she continued to have progressive impairments, particularly in the areas of language and executive functions, which typically include higher order decision making and complex reasoning. In contrast to these deficits, her general orientation and memory was fairly intact and she had fairly intact visual spatial and visual constructional abilities, suggesting that she was able to navigate her way spatially fairly well, um, but had difficulties in communication specifically and decision making. These results continued to be consistent with a frontotemporal problem, in her case with greater dysfunction in the language dominant hemisphere. And this goes back to our earlier mention that there tend to be more language predominant um, presentations versus more behavioral variations, although these can occur together and often do. As we continued to follow this patient, about four years later from her first presentation, she was continuing to decline in her general function. And at this time, personality changes and poor judgment became more clear on clinical evaluation. At that time, as she followed up in clinic, she was beginning to dress in somewhat unusual attire. For example, she appeared to clinic at one point in a purple t-shirt um, with purple leggings that appeared a little bit inconsistent with the typical dress of a 75-year-old. 
Her grooming was less careful than it was previous, and she clearly needed some assistance with laundry and grooming and general cleanliness. She was also noted to be carrying three bags that appeared unnecessarily cluttered with items, as well as an extra coat, and she continued to carry the camera with her that we had noticed at her first presentation. She continued to be obsessive about taking pictures of the clinic, and during her clinic visit, she would not release her purse or one of her bags to the examiner so that she could complete her examination. In follow-up, she did have neuropsychological assessment, again at age 76. At that time, she was noted to have impairments in memory that were becoming more distinct at that time, as well as significant ongoing decline in language abilities and executive function, which typically is decision-making skills. At that time, she was noted to have even more prominent behavioral disinhibition, hugging and kissing the examiner and giggling during her evaluation. It was felt at this time that she did have frontotemporal dementia, although in the context of the typical onset, age 76 is somewhat older than you would normally see because this is an earlier onset illness that often is apparent in the late 50s with more prominent deficits in age 60 or so age range. At that time at age 76, it was considered best to transition to an assisted living facility. She was no longer driving. Um, however, she continued to decline behaviorally in assisted living and wandered away at one point and was uh, brought back by her family, having walked to a nearby neighborhood uh, without appropriate clothing for the, for the weather at the time. Not long thereafter, she did have a right hip fracture requiring hospitalization where post-surgically she did have significant sundowning behavior that would be consistent with someone experiencing a progression of dementia and also going through a surgical procedure and general anesthesia. During the sundowning, she did have symptoms of delirium, um, trying to get out of bed without assistance and developing more hallucinations and aggression, prompting a diagnosis of delirium and very brief management of the delirium with haloperidol. Subsequent to that time, she did transition to a nursing care facility to better meet her safety needs. And at that time, she was noted verbally to have great difficulty with repetitive questions. She was impulsive in her behaviors and wanted to often walk without a walker, even though a walker was essential for safety after her hip fracture and in the context of increasing gait instability. Um, during these times, she repeatedly wanted to get up and move about her room and use the bathroom with multiple repetitive requests um, and substantial talkativeness. She also suffered from some sleep-wake disturbance and began to have more difficulty with falls. In the context of sustaining one fall, she did have a CT of the head to assess for any acute changes, and you will note that there was a hematoma after the fall. At that time, though, in the, the reading of the head CT, there was noted to have been very prominent progression, at this point more generalized um, throughout the brain, 
as far as atrophic change that would be consistent with a progressive dementia syndrome. She is presently at age 81, managed with still fairly minimal medications, with the exception of the addition of uh, medications for thyroid hypertension. And sertraline was introduced um, at the time of her stay in long-term care to try to help with some of the compulsive behaviors with the idea that SSRIs at times can target anxiety and obsessive and, and compulsive symptoms clinically. Trazodone was also introduced because of the difficulty with sleep-wake problems and insomnia. Her mental status exam at her current state at age 81, she is still fairly pleasant and smiling as per her usual long-term demeanor. At this time, she's oriented only to her name and she's had progressive deficits in memory and general cognition. Although her attention is generally fairly good, she continues to have poor insight. Um, she is not overtly experiencing psychosis or abnormal movements. And she tells the examiner visiting in long-term care that she loves the examiner, which is consistent with her long-term behavioral disinhibition and um, difficulty with social norms. So now to review the diagnostic criteria and clinical features of frontotemporal dementia in the context of the case we just described. It's important to emphasize that frontotemporal is typically an early onset dementia, meaning that on average, late 50s or 59 as a mean age is often when the first symptoms are detected. And usually by early 60s, most cases have been identified as experiencing some difficulties. It's very unusual to have the very first diagnosis or onset after the age of 75. Now, the classic syndrome was previously called Pick's disease, and we'll describe more about how further research has clarified that there are more diverse um, syndromes and sources associated with frontotemporal dementia beyond the original classification. Frontotemporal dementia is the second most common of the early onset dementias, with the other one being, of course, Alzheimer's disease does have the potential to have a very early onset. Now, after the age of 65, frontotemporal dementia becomes less common due to the onset of more frequent case detection of Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and Lewy body disease. Now, it's important to highlight that at the initial presentation of frontotemporal dementia, memory problems are not the main symptom. Although we often think of memory as a classic feature of most dementias, frontotemporal patients oftentimes have relative preservation of memory function, while other skills may be more dramatically impaired or more behavioral dysfunction may progress. As we review the distinct variants of frontotemporal dementia, there is a behavioral variant associated with changes in personality and behavior. As we've seen in the previous case, this can be associated with inappropriate hugging and kissing of individuals that perhaps um, would not be appropriate to engage in those behaviors with. And this is associated usually with a more frontally predominant cortical degeneration. 
Now, in the semantic case, there can be a progressive loss of word knowledge and the ability to communicate about words and objects. The semantic dementia is one of the language variants, and it's often associated with more distinct atrophy of anterior temporal um, neurons in the anterior temporal lobes. Now, another subtype within the language variants of frontotemporal dementia is called progressive non-fluent aphasia. And that has a different um, problem in language and communication where there's a loss of grammar and even a loss of motor speech abilities so that language output becomes very effortful and impaired. So this, there are two different types of language impairments. Often they overlap, but they tend to have very distinct atrophic changes um, on brain imaging that may help us understand different problems clinically. The um, progressive non-fluent aphasias tend to be associated with left paracylvian cortical atrophy. Now, the DSM diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia does try to address both the behavioral variants and the language variants within the criteria. So the new nosology uses the term frontotemporal neurocognitive disorder, and you can specify a behavioral variant if there is prominent behavioral disinhibition. And this is operationalized as socially inappropriate behavior or a loss of normal manners or decorum socially. And this may be accompanied by rash or careless actions. And at least three of the following are typically present for the confirmation of diagnostic criteria. And one of these features is apathy or inertia. And this one might be not normally conceptualized as part of an impulsive or, or necessarily inappropriate behavior, but this is a very common and can be a very prominent behavioral feature of this variant where there's simply a loss of motivation or a loss of organization to engage in goal-directed behaviors so that an individual, for example, may sit most of the day and simply stare at a television or have no real motivation to engage in any normal activities of living. And this, this term is often referred to as abulia, or a loss of enjoyment or engagement in normal social activities. However, emotionally, there's often no real sadness or concern. There's just simply a loss of initiative. Similarly, a loss of sympathy or empathy for other individuals is another prominent feature. Just a loss of that awareness of other people's feelings or other people's interrelatedness. So just a loss of the ability to engage socially in a meaningful way with other individuals. Now, what we saw more commonly in the patient we just described is the perseverative and stereotyped or compulsive behaviors. So she had really a loss of, of the normal social interactions as well as evidence of compulsive or stereotyped perseverative behaviors such as um, taking photos of the exam room, hoarding items at home, 
and the compulsive carrying water bottles and always having to have water at hand ties into the unusual dietary changes and often unusual food behaviors that is seen with frontotemporal um, variant of dementia. So hyperorality is a term that refers to excessive eating or eating unusual um, food items. One example that I've seen clinically is a patient with frontotemporal symptoms who literally was drinking honey out of a jar, which would not be a normal food preference, particularly not in an adult at any rate. And so unusual consumption of food or, or liquids is another feature. And typically within the behavioral vari variant, there's clear evidence of impaired decision-making and frontal executive function. Now, for the language features, which is a separate variant but oftentimes does overlap, there are two main criteria, and one of these would be a gradual worsening of language function. And this may be evident with changes in speech production, word finding, naming objects, or word comprehension, with evidence for essentially normal language function early in life. Now this one's interesting in the sense that if a person has Alzheimer's dementia, they may also have trouble with finding names for things in their memory. Now frontotemporal language variant is very different in the sense that in the second criteria, memory function and visual spatial function is comparatively less impaired so that you can test things like visual memory and memory function turns out to be intact that an individual if they see an object and see it again in a few minutes they remember that object but their ability to communicate about that object is impaired so the language impairment in frontotemporal patients typically exceeds problems in memory this is important to know because on a day-to-day -day basis, like our patient we described, because memory is intact, these patients often don't necessarily get lost. They may be able to drive and remember where they're going because their memory is still working, but they may not be able to communicate very well using language, or they may be behaving in unusual ways that become disruptive. So when we think about how does frontotemporal start or what is the neuropathology, we know originally that frontotemporal disease was classified as Pick's disease because there were neuronal inclusions on histopathologic exam that were Pick bodies. This was observed in post-mortem tissue from persons who had this syndrome. Now, as research has progressed, we understand that there are many more sources of what we call frontotemporal dementia from different mutations and abnormal um, genetic features, particularly chromosome 17, has been implicated with very specific um, problems in the progranulin gene and the microtubule-associated protein tau gene mapped. So as we learn more and understand the contributions from these genetic features, there's a very good chance that over time we'll be able to distinguish how the different clinical variants uh, map to different genetic sources of the condition that contribute to its pathogenesis. 
So now how do we, um, how do we assess and treat our patients once we understand what is happening diagnostically? Well, it's important to know that progression can vary in this condition, but does tend to be progressive, particularly over about one decade. There is a progression of usually language dysfunction as well as continued deterioration in behavior and social function. Now, often when we make a diagnosis, we instantly want to think of a medication that might be helpful. Unfortunately, the typical medicines that we tend to fairly automatically use at times in the dementia syndromes include the cholinesterase inhibitors. However, they have not been shown to have benefit for persons with frontotemporal dementia. And this is logical intuitively given that memory is not impaired as a primary feature in frontotemporal and cholinesterase inhibitors tend to work primarily on neuronal function that facilitates memory. Consequently, what we would experience with cholinesterase inhibitors in frontotemporal dementia is simply side effects with no clear benefit. Now, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRI antidepressants, may potentially have a modest benefit, perhaps both for um, some of the behavioral disinhibition, but more likely um, through treatment, perhaps of some compulsive behaviors or obsessive thinking. And trazodone may be beneficial, both for some benefits in perhaps decreasing impulsivity and for sleep to help normalize the sleep-wake pattern. So those two particular agents, SSRIs and trazodone, may have some suggested benefit for frontotemporal dementia. But by and large, treatment is really about environment and safety and educating family and caregivers to understand that memory and visual-spatial function may often be intact, but dealing with inappropriate behaviors and helping to communicate in the presence of language dysfunction um, really is the essence of providing safe treatment with the highest possible quality of life. Well, now that we've completed our discussion of frontotemporal dementia, we'll conclude the last half of this session with Lewy body disease and discuss how it relates to the other dementias. Like Alzheimer's and vascular disease, Lewy body disease tends to accumulate risk over time and occurs as usually a later onset dementia. But Lewy body disease is very unique in that it has many similarities and overlap in features with both the pathology and the clinical symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Like Parkinson's disease, the cognitive impairments with Lewy body disease are not necessarily memory-related, particularly not initially, but are more associated with impairments in attention and slow information processing with relative um, preservation of memory. And one of the key features that we'll talk about here at length is the propensity for adverse effects from medications and a very high risk for delirium. It's probably two of the most important um, features to remember about Lewy body disease because they have the most impact on clinical management. Um, and attention to those issues can really make a tremendous difference in, in good clinical treatment.
So now to frame how we see dementia with Lewy bodies in the context of our patient populations, the mean age at diagnosis for this condition is around age 75. And like frontotemporal, there's a slight predominance of males in this clinical population. Now, Lewy bodies are histopathologic finding associated with Lewy body dementia, but they contain alpha-synuclein, which is the same aggregate protein seen in Parkinson's disease. And protein misfolding is now understood to really be at the essence of a number of the different dementia syndromes, and we can help understand them from a histopathologic standpoint by understanding what, what molecules and what proteins are, are abnormal. In the case of Lewy body and Parkinson's disease, that abnormality is in alpha-synuclein. Lewy body presents clinically as a confluence of some Parkinson's disease motor symptoms, but also a number of more prominent dementia features. And Lewy body is very unique in the sense that vivid visual hallucinations very often characterize the disease course. Another prominent feature of the disease course in Lewy body disease is the neuroleptic or antipsychotic medication sensitivity. In general, these patients have very prominent vulnerabilities to having reactions to medications in general, not just antipsychotic medications. But because of the Parkinsonian symptoms in Lewy body disease, there's often a very prominent reaction to exposure to antipsychotic medications. And in fact, it's a somewhat of an indicator of disease severity, as we've observed that there's actually a higher mortality risk in persons with Lewy body disease who have reactions to antipsychotic medications compared to those that do not. So now as we think about the criteria for a neurocognitive disorder due to dementia with Lewy bodies, which is consistent with now the DSM-5 terminology. In DSM-5, the core diagnostic features are described for neurocognitive disorder due to Lewy body dementia, and they reflect what we've talked about in terms of the vulnerabilities to fluctuations in cognition with variations in attention and alertness. Now, this is very much in contrast to persons with, say, frontotemporal dementia or even early Alzheimer's disease where attention and alertness is not a problem. In fact, attention is often intact in frontotemporal dementia and as well as Alzheimer's disease. And the ability to maintain alertness is not impaired in those other disorders. So they may be able to be fully alert and cooperate with the neuropsychological assessment, but have severe impairments in memory in Alzheimer's disease or language in frontotemporal. By contrast, in persons with Lewy bodies, there can be fluctuations from time to time in the ability to sustain attention or sustain alertness so that sometimes attempting to do neuropsychological testing, if an individual is not able to maintain attention or alertness throughout the testing, um, there could be relatively severe interpretations of impairment that may fluctuate from time to time. 
Now, along with impairments in attention, it would make sense if we think about the conceptualization of an almost delirious-like state that often people with Lewy bodies are very vulnerable to, then recurrent hallucinations would be an expected um, clinical feature that in fact is seen with Lewy body um, disease. And often in Lewy body, these can be visual hallucinations, which are the type of hallucination that we typically would associate also with a delirium. However, in the context of Lewy bodies, these often have a very unique feature in the sense that they are very well-formed visual hallucinations and often very detailed. So a person with Lewy body dementia may describe very clear uh, visual perceptions of having visitors of very specific people um, that appear very vivid and they may see very specific people or animals or other clearly experienced visual hallucinations that are a core feature of this illness. Now, as a part of the Lewy body progression, there are typically spontaneous features of Parkinsonism. However, unlike Parkinson's disease, in Lewy body dementia, the Parkinsonism tends to occur later in the course of illness, typically after there's already a detection of changes in cognition. Now, Lewy body dementia has more definitive features that we just described, suggestive features that often go along with a condition include REM sleep behavior disorder. Now, the sleep disorder associated with Lewy body dementia is an interesting condition in the sense that there is a, a disturbance in the transition between the sleeping and wake state, which is the REM sleep phase, or rapid eye movement, or REM sleep it's often called. And during REM sleep is usually the dream-like period of sleep. And individuals during REM sleep who have this disturbance will often move or even speak during this time in a way that may appear as if they're awake, but they're actually still in the REM sleep period. There may also be some confusion that the individual experiences between the dreaming and waking state. And this is considered the REM sleep behavior disorder um, that can be very suggestive of Lewy body dementia. And over time, research is suggesting that it often can be a very early symptom and even a prognosticator of the subsequent occurrence of Lewy body disease. Now, severe neuroleptic sensitivity I've already mentioned, and that is usually characterized by a very poor response to antipsychotic medications. As you might imagine, um, when a person's experiencing hallucinations, it would seem intuitive um, to proceed with these antipsychotic treatments. However, not only do the visual hallucinations not necessarily respond and often uh, or typically do not, there can be very significant worsening of the Parkinsonian symptoms when there's exposure to antipsychotics or neuroleptic medications. Therefore, management issues of Lewy body dementia require a very exquisite attention to the fact that the Parkinsonism is a very substantial problem and, in fact, responds very poorly to the typical dopaminergic medications that we would normally use for Parkinson's disease.
So when we see Parkinsonian symptoms such as rigidity or tremor, intuitively we would want to start a dopaminergic medication like Cinemet or Levodopa. But these medications oftentimes not only fail to adequately treat the Parkinson's symptoms, but can increase the likelihood of visual hallucinations or a fluctuating sensorium. So oftentimes the best management for the visual hallucinations is to provide reassurance and reorientation when possible, but avoid medications if there's really no distress and the person can benefit from reassurance that if they're perceiving visitors in the room, if they're not afraid of them or disturbed by the, the experience, then perhaps we can provide reassurance. If medications, in fact, are largely going to induce side effects with very minimal or no benefit, um, then reassurance would be the optimal management choice. Now, realizing that a fluctuating sensorium or this propensity to have delirious-like symptoms or confusion is a very important risk to understand in Lewy body dementia as we potentially add medications to try to treat the visual hallucinations or treat the Parkinson's symptoms, there can be a very big concern about increasing risk for delirium or adding to impaired alertness. And care issues often can center around repeated falls due to confusion or, or other symptomatic um, responses to medication. Syncope is often frequently observed in Lewy body, and this goes along the lines of difficulty in sustaining consciousness or attention. So repeated episodes of syncopal events or unconsciousness can be very concerning. Depressive-like symptoms often go along with Parkinson's symptoms, and depression may appear to be a treatment um, issue in Lewy body dementia, but there has to be you know, very careful consideration of the risks of psychotropic medications versus the benefit of reassurance, counseling, and support for those symptoms. And episodic unconsciousness um, along the lines of syncopal episodes are another behavioral management concern. So the strategies that we should use then for Lewy body dementia would include minimizing medications to the extent possible. The Parkinsonian features of Lewy body often include hypophonia, which is also a characteristic of Parkinsonism, which is a very, very soft and slow speech that may be very difficult to hear. So if you're leaning down to listen to your patient with Lewy body, that should be a diagnostic clue as to, to what they're experiencing. The rigidity that is often seen in Lewy body is thought to at times have more of a truncal bias. So persons with Lewy body may have truncal rigidity, but perhaps a little bit less tremor, um, but also have more facial impassivity or the, the lost facial expression. These particular symptoms may not necessarily improve as much with dopaminergic medications as the more classic symptoms of Parkinson's, such as tremor. And this may relate to the propensity for Lewy body to poorly respond to dopaminergic medications and, in fact, typically experience the side effects more prominently. Now, a cholinesterase inhibitor would seem to stand to reason as potentially beneficial in Lewy body dementia, 
And there are numerous case reports that suggest it may be tried, but the data have not been particularly clear, and we do need to worry of the side, about the side effects of cholinesterase inhibitors because they can slow down heart rate and at times could um, increase a propensity to falls or other problems if not used carefully. And so a cholinesterase inhibitor, while it may sound like a potential um, beneficial medication, it's really unclear as to whether it can be recommended at this time. And again, to the extent possible, um, reduction of medications is probably a wise choice unless there is clear evidence of benefit with close monitoring. Antidepressants may seem indicated, but I think using very carefully is always good practice and avoid if the individual is able to respond to non-pharmacologic interventions for depression, such as interpersonal support, um, activities, and individual psychotherapy. Avoiding antipsychotic medications, if at all possible. And remembering that the clinical features, and this is important, do not necessarily um, have prominent memory decline with them. And oftentimes when we consider a person with dementia who may seem very slow and very confused at times, if in fact the individual with Lewy body is not experiencing um, confusion at the time, and if medications are, are minimized and, and other, um, other healthcare practices are optimized, oftentimes memory can remain fairly intact. And it's important to educate caregivers to allow time for cognitive responses. Many times the person with Lewy body dementia or even Parkinson's disease may be able to actually accurately answer questions or engage in communication if there's sufficient time knowing that information processing is slowed and attention may be somewhat impaired. But if given adequate time and patience, an individual with Lewy body dementia may actually be able to demonstrate the ability to remember um, better than one might expect and in fact may be able to interact better than one might expect if they're given time and there are adjustments for their slowed information processing. So working on education about these features and providing support are really some of the most important strategies to bear in mind in Lewy body dementia. So to summarize and to sort of bring our, our discussion all together today, dementia is a word that we very often think about in terms of both Alzheimer's disease and we think of memory decline. But in fact, there's much more variation than just Alzheimer's disease. And differences in the age of onset, course, and features can be very distinct depending on the type of dementia that's going on. Understanding the type can be very important, particularly when you consider that frontotemporal and Lewy body, in fact, don't have memory as a primary feature, but they have very prominent disturbances in other features such as behavior, language, and slow information processing, and a propensity to confusion. So understanding these less common types can be enormously helpful in providing care that helps both the caregiver and the patient improve their quality of life. And so being aware of things such as slower thinking in Lewy body or impaired language in frontotemporal can be just a very simple and very basic educational point and, and really bears um, attention to understanding the progression of the disorder.
when people reach long-term care, often we tend to lump the dementias into one disorder. But thinking back to the progression that led them to long-term care, as in the patient we talked about with frontotemporal, and understanding the progression of their clinical features can really help us understand what diagnosis we're actually dealing with. So I greatly appreciate your attention, and I hope this has been helpful today. Thank you very much.